Let's uh, pray as we commit this afternoon to God. Our great God and Father, we thank you again for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you for opportunities to learn from your word, to grow in our own faith and faithfulness. We thank you for Christian fellowship. We thank you for the food that we've eaten. And we pray now that you'll keep us attentive uh, to your word, uh, guide us and in truth, guard us from uh, error and lead us, we pray, to maturity in Christ so that we will be ready to meet him on the day of his return. For we ask this in his name. Amen. I wonder how many Old Testament laws you're breaking right now. <laughs> Some of you, like me, have pork digesting in your stomach. Some of you have probably got cotton and polyester or other mixes of materials in your uh, clothing. Uh, Not many of you have got tassels hanging at the end of your coats or cloaks or shirts. Uh, Some women might be wearing men's clothing depending on how you... (laughs) Although I must say I haven't quite seen any men wearing women's clothing but... Last weekend I was in Myanmar and one could argue that happens there when they wear longis, which are like sarongs uh, there. Uh, And not many people rise in the presence of the aged. Um, (laughs) I'm not quite sure who's the oldest here, but anyway, uh, I confess I don't think I did that either. So, uh, why is that? Are we being disobedient to God's law? Or have we got reasons, right reasons, for doing or not doing Uh, those sort of things. What is the law? Uh, The Hebrew word for law, Torah, is a broad term in fact. It means way of life, way to live, guidance for life, that sort of idea. Uh, Israelites and Jews would call the Pentateuch the Torah, uh, but not because there are laws in it, but because the whole of it is the Torah. And so the narrative is Torah, as are the laws of do this and don't do this. Uh, what in English the word law is a narrower sort of word, uh, the do this, the don't do this. Uh, Torah is a broader term. But in this, in this uh, talk, I'm wanting to think in the narrowest sense, in a, in a way, dealing with legal stipulations, the commands. In Deuteronomy, they are largely chapters 5 to 26, and in particular 12 to 26, uh, although there are a few others here and there. And, uh, but what I'm going to say is a bit broader than Deuteronomy. I'm really wanting to speak about how we deal with Old Testament law in general, whether it's Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy or, or whatever uh, in effect it is. The um, Old Testament law is all-encompassing. Uh, there's every aspect of life is brought under the commands of God. So it is a, a demonstration of God's sovereignty over all of life. Uh, It's a bit unlike the other ancient Near Eastern laws because uh, there those laws did not usually integrate religious laws with all the sort of social, political sort of laws. Whereas in the Old Testament, they're all integrated uh, together. As I indicated earlier on in the first talk, I think, when I mentioned the covenantal structure of Deuteronomy, uh, it's very important that we get the context of the law right. That is, that the law is not the way to win God's favour. The law is in a context of grace 
that is in a context of a relationship already established by God when he chose Israel, or chose Abraham really, and therefore Abraham's descendants. Why did God choose Abraham? Not because he would be obedient, not because he was obedient, not because he was God-fearing or pious or a Yahwist or anything like that. He chose him because he chose him. It's a sort of circular argument in a way. He loved him because he loved him. Uh, It was out of the initiative of God rather than out of something within Abram or within Abram's descendants that prompted God. Uh, It's certainly not the view of the Bible that uh, God chose or chooses people uh, because he knows that they will respond in the right way or something like that. Uh, That's a nonsense. uh, So it is important to get the context right. And as I indicated before, one of the dangers is even when we know that we've got the context right and we know that law is grace, because the grace section sometimes, as you teach week by week in a small group or a sermon, can sometimes become a bit remote. It's easy to assume it, but it's a danger always to assume it. Not that I want us to be repetitive every time and so every law you deal with, you've got to go back to the story of the Exodus and redemption and blah, blah, blah. That could become boringly repetitive. But we need to make sure that it's anchored uh, in grace because it's easy to become legalistic. Uh, It's part of us in our human nature that somehow ends up being that sort of legalistic. I think that's part of human pride, thinking that somehow we can keep a law and therefore win God's favour and deserve it and that sort of thing. Uh, So we need to be careful not to do that. The other other aspect of this, um, at the other end, let let me just say, passing digression really, is um, in our application of Old Testament laws or even New Testament ones, we must be careful not there to become legalistic. For example, um, uh, if, if we're saying that we should be uh, people who dress modestly, what will that mean? Well, ladies, you should not have skirts above the knee. That's actually legalism. The principle of modesty might be a good one, but you've got to be careful how you, how you, do, how do you honour your parents. When they're very old, do you put them in a nursing home or do you bring them into your own home and care for them? You've got to be careful not to be legalistic by saying one is a good thing and not the other. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just sort of, for those who are going to be teaching small groups and you're going to come to some of these laws, just just be careful about making sure that we don't end up with a a new legalism somehow in our application of Old Testament laws. So that's a few things about uh, the context uh, of it all. Um, the The other aspect of the grace context is to do with promise. It's, it's right and important to see that Israel's obedience to the law uh, will serve the fulfilment of the promises of God. God promised the land. He will give that, in a sense, uh, to Israel, but he demands of them obedience to conquer it. And even though the conquest is God's victory, Israel has a role to play in that. We haven't got time to look at those verses, but in in chapter 7, for example, and other parts of Deuteronomy, God is the one who drives them out or whatever, but Israel must conquer or defeat or something. So there's a sort of synergy going on there. Uh, we don't want to... Um, uh, and, 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 and yet Israel is commanded to obey because obedience will help serve God's promises. The same with the blessings in a way. God's desire or 
object or purpose is not simply the conquest but that Israel lives the righteous life in the land that will attract others into the land and uh, attract the nations that is. And, uh, and so obedience will bring blessing but blessing is not sort of the personal comfort of Israel so much as serving the glory of God by be- becoming a brighter light of attraction for the nations around to come in. So there's this connection between law and promise as well that uh, we ought not totally separate as though you've sort of got gospel grace and promise and law and somehow they're, they're at each other. They're actually uh, intertwined and, and, and the law is serving the promise. The promise, I think, is the master rather than the law uh, in the Old Testament. There are two types of um, laws in the Old Testament and this is uh, point three on the handout. Uh, what I've put here is absolute laws, but the actual technical word um, is apodictic. And um, apodictic laws are the ones that simply say, do this or don't do that. The Ten Commandments are apodictic. So, you shall have no other gods but me. Uh, in order to understand, I mean, that seems obvious to us in a way that a law is do this or don't do that. But the majority of laws are what are called casuistic or case laws, which is if this is the case, then do that. So, if if your neighbour's ox is fallen in the road, then pick it up, take it home, look after it, return it to its owner. Um, that's, That's the majority of Old Testament law and in fact the majority of ancient Near Eastern laws as well. Uh, In fact, Israel having apodictic laws, do this or don't do that, don't steal, don't murder, is actually a bit distinctive in the ancient world, um, apparently. So, there are two types of laws. Uh, The the general simple commands, which in effect uh, probably have a higher, uh, they're higher in the hierarchy uh, of law in a way. They are universal in their application. It's not do not murder on some days but not other days or do not murder uh, if it's this or that or the other. It's simple, do not murder. The other ones are situational in a particular situation or case and so they have a lower uh, area of application. The apodictic laws uh, in a sense express what we might say is a bit more of a principle in the law, the casuistic or case laws have within it a principle but they're, they're situational and concrete. We might, uh, I want to draw this uh, sort of diagram to sort of illustrate this and then develop it over the course of this talk. The majority of laws, case laws, we might say are down here and really what, what it is, is a we might say a, a context or situation plus we might say a principle. So, if your neighbour's ox is fallen by the road, pick it up, take it home, look after it and return it. Um, the principle there would be a principle ultimately of loving your neighbour. Okay. Um, but it's not simply saying love your neighbour. It's, it's, a, it's a concrete action that in a sense demonstrates a broader, bigger, higher principle. So, um, the apodictic laws in, in, in many senses live in this level, which is, we might say simply, the principle. 
So on on the neighbour's ox fallen, up at this level it could be um, look after your neighbour's broken, fallen, lost property or animals or something like that. A bigger, and that's an expression of a higher principle, ultimately love your neighbour. So you could actually end up with sort of broader principles going up. The ethicists call this a ladder of abstraction. This is the concrete down here, your neighbour's ox, and you move up to a slightly abstract principle of look after your neighbour's property or animals or do not murder or something like that and, uh, and you move up to love your neighbour up, up sort of higher and higher principles. And that I think is how the Old Testament law itself uh, is, is meant to be viewed. Uh, in Deuteronomy it's very interesting that uh, chapters... 12 to 26, I would say in a sense chapters uh, 6 to 26 in a way, uh, follow the pattern of the Ten Commandments more or less. I don't think you can argue that every single law does this, but the vast majority do in, in slightly creatively broad terms. What I mean is that uh, some, some would argue chapters 12 or 13, and I would say chapters 6 up to 12 or 13, is a bit like, you shall have no other gods before me. So there's laws about you know, no idolatry and the right place of worship and so on. And that, that fits under the, the general principle of no other gods. Um, moving on, uh, honour your parents. Well, m- scholars who've analysed this sort of thing say, well, perhaps the, the parents as people of authority matches up in a way with the instructions about leaders like judges, kings, priests and prophets in the end of chapter 16 through to the end of chapter 18. Now, that's a bit creative, I know, because they're not your parents, but you can see that there are some similarities uh, of connection. There is actually a, a, a later on, I can't remember, chapter 21 maybe, of, um, of putting to death a son who's rebellious against their parents, I think, or something like that. So, um, it, it's not the only place and there, there's an, a couple of other things that might fit under the, the principle of honour your parents. But the, the laws of Deuteronomy, at least 12 to 26, largely follow that sort of flow. Not rigidly, not absolutely. There are exceptions here and there. In the last 30 or 40 years, a number of scholars have tried to analyse, you know, is there this sort of flow of the Ten Commandments? What What that does suggest, and I'm persuaded that there's a general pattern there, what that suggests is this sort of model where the Ten Commandments are like principles and here we get concrete situations of application of those principles um, in broad terms. Now, the thing with case law or casuistic law is that they don't cover every situation. Uh, If... If, Israel, if Israel's law in the Old Testament covered absolutely every situation, it would probably be too big to read. I, mean, I imagine that if you got a copy of every law for Singapore, which is actually a small country, you, you would never get to read it. What I mean is, uh, you see, there's a law... Now, I'm, I'm transposing Australia here because I really don't know Singapore, but I'm assuming a similarity... There will be a law that says the speed limit of this street here might be, I don't know, 50 k's an hour, 60 or something. 
but the street down there that's a bit bigger might be 80 and the, the, the freeway or motorway or tollway or whatever will be 100 or 110 or something. That is, in a sense, you've got a law for every bit of street in Singapore. Okay? Do you see what I mean? If you've got a law for every situation, it'd be an immense book to read. The Old Testament law is actually very short and brief. It doesn't cover every situation. For example, uh, the one about the ox uh, fallen by the road is the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, you shall not watch your neighbour's... Uh, oh, no, uh, verse 4 is what I want. Uh, you shall not see your neighbour's donkey or ox fallen on the road and ignore it. You shall help to lift it up. Donkey or ox. My neighbour's horse has just fallen down. And I can walk by on the other side of the road because the law says ox or... Uh, what was it? Ox or um, donkey. Oh, it's a horse. Ah, fine, you can stay there. You're laughing because you know that that would be wrong. Why? There's no law that tells me I've got to help my neighbour's horse up. How does an Old Testament law, especially this case casuistic law, which is the vast majority of them, how do they work? How are they meant to work? We well, see our perverse minds would find loopholes when we want to find loopholes. It's a horse, I don't have to worry about it. But the right way of reading the Old Testament law is to see that the case laws provide a paradigm, a model. I put the word paradigm, I think, on the handout, 3.3. And uh, that is, they, they are the expression of a principle, say, looking after your neighbour's animals or property, but they give it as a paradigm, ox or donkey in this case. Now, imagine if, if every single possibility was listed, Deuteronomy 22 verse 4 would be the longest verse in the Bible, except for the fact that every other law has got to put up every situation. So, you imagine, you know, you shall not see your neighbour's donkey or ox or sheep or camel or wombat or koala or the list would go on and on. You see, we're meant to read the law as paradigms, as a model. So, when we see a neighbour's horse, we think, what should I do? Well, I'm supposed to look after an ox or a donkey and a horse is similar. I think I probably should look after it. Now, after all, that's an expression of loving your neighbour as a top principle. It's an expression of loving your neighbour's property or caring for it or whatever as a slightly lower principle. Do you see how the law is meant to operate even in Old Testament times? And, uh, and that, I think, is the role of the judges. Uh, not the judges in the book of Judges, but the legal judges scattered around the towns. They were the ones who would, who would help people see the paradigms and the principles and, and how to apply the law in situations that the law itself does not cover. Uh, that's, the, that's what I'm trying to drive at, I guess. There's a, a law in, um, this is Leviticus, not Deuteronomy, um, that says, you shall not turn to a medium or a spiritist. That is to contact the dead or find out the future. Well, what happens if somebody sets up their booth in the shopping mall and says, uh, I'm not a spiritist or a medium, I'm a soothsayer? Well, I think that's splitting hairs of definitions, probably. But you think, oh, phew, you're not a spiritist or a medium, I can go to you and find out about the future or talk to the dead. Now, actually in Deuteronomy 18, it actually has a longer list than Leviticus. And by comparing the two, uh, I, I think we see how the law functions as a paradigm in that way. 
Deuteronomy expands the list and even that list may not be complete. It's telling us, don't don't in a sense go to anyone who does that sort of thing. Uh, That's what the law is meant to do. There's another law somewhere. I I, I think I wrote it down, but I can't remember. Uh, uh, Exodus 21.18. There are penalties if you hit someone with a fist or a stone. Well, I'm going to kick you. You know we shouldn't do that. That's how the law is meant to work. So, the model then would be you take a law, we recognise that it's an expression of context and principle. In a sense, we identify then the principle and we reapply it in a different context. Ox or donkey, reapply for horse. Fist or stone, reapply it for kicking someone. They're simple examples, I know, but that's what's going on. And that's how the Old Testament is meant to happen. And I think that that's how the New Testament also reads the Old Testament laws. So there's um, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about not muzzling the ox, letting it eat, and applies it, I think, to proper care of ministers, in effect. Uh, I think I've got the right verse and so on. Uh, What's he doing there? Some say it's an allegory. Well, I don't think so. What Paul is saying is, if the Old Testament law has in a principle that you should actually make sure that an ox is well fed and looked after and cared for, then the same principle surely should apply to a minister of the gospel, even in a bigger way. That I think is what's going on. I think that's what Jesus is doing to an extent in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You shall not commit adultery, we might say, is a principle, but Jesus is actually in one sense taking us up to a higher principle and saying, well, it's not just the physical action, It's actually the bigger principle of not lusting and the same when he deals with other laws of the commandments as well. I think that's what's going on. Recognising an element of paradigm or model and and lifting people to a higher principle and seeing that that paradigm or model doesn't just function within a very narrow confine but actually in broader terms, in in different contexts as well. So uh, that I think is how... The Bible sees the laws of the Old Testament as how they should be read. We come then to the trickier question, perhaps, of the Old Testament law and the Christian. We're now thinking another step of hermeneutics, in a way. The, um, but this model still applies, although we modified a bit. There are two strands, perhaps, in New Testament thinking that lead in the end to polar arguments. One strand would be that the Old Testament law is upheld by Paul and Jesus. We can, we can quote Jesus and we can quote Paul as saying the Old Testament law is good, we uphold it, we're not overthrowing it, we're not abolishing it, uh, let's maintain it and so on. And uh, we see Jesus keeping the law when he interacts with the Pharisees. It's only ever on the issues of oral law rather than actually on the Old Testament law, etc. On the other hand, we can also quote Jesus and Paul and others as saying that the Old Testament law is past. It was there for the Old Covenant and not the New, or we're under grace and not law, etc. They're the two sort of strands. Now, in in this sort of lecture, I haven't got time to try and unpack that, and that's a a big thorny issue in a way, um, about which there are countless books uh, that are being written and are being written and will be written, no doubt, uh, until the Lord returns. The, um, but what it, what, it help, what it means is that 
we, we end up with uh, some people who say, uh, we, we might call maximalists, that is, they want the maximum of the Old Testament law, and others who might be minimalists, that is, uh, a minimal amount of the Old Testament law. What, what I mean is, if, you, if your general view is the Old Testament law still stands, it's affirmed, kept, obeyed by Jesus, by Paul and upheld, uh, then you probably are a maximalist. On the other hand, if you say it's done, it's finished, when Jesus says he fulfills it, he's not upholding it but ending it, then you'd be a minimalist and say, well, the Old Testament law is, is gone. Now, uh, that then leads to a, a couple uh, of different positions that I've briefly summarised on the handout here about Old Testament law. Uh, there are some who would simply say, we keep the Ten Commandments, but that's about it. Uh, I've actually heard that so often, it surprises me because it's, it strikes me as such an odd view uh, in a way. Um, there doesn't seem to be anything in the scriptures that isolates them to keep them and not the rest, uh, it seems to me. The, though they have a, a position of some preeminence at the beginning of the law in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Um, but I hear people say, and usually they're people actually who who in the context in which I've heard it, have been uh, when you meet people who are nominally members of your church or call themselves Christian, I say, oh, look, uh, you know, I, I never get to church, but look, I am a Christian. I actually, I keep the Ten Commandments. Now, I've heard that a number of times over the years. And uh, after a couple of times, I thought, oh, what a nonsense. So now when people say that to me, I say, no, you don't. And they think, oh, what a rude man. But um, people are shocked, but they don't. I mean, we don't. We don't keep this... Well, I assume we don't. Um, uh, for example, on the Sabbath. Uh, because keep the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment, is literally, really, technically, the Friday evening through to Saturday evening. Now, there are some Christians who would maintain that, the Seventh-day Adventist church among them. Uh, but, you know, there we are. That is a view that is held. It seems to me that nine of the Ten Commandments are upheld in the New Testament, but the Sabbath law is... Um, arguably not upheld, at least for the particular day of the Sabbath. But that's one view, one that I think uh, probably doesn't really stand the weight of analysis. A couple of others, though. Here, here is the maximalist view and then the minimalist view on my sheet. Um, I'm going to just put up another model in the corner here that's unrelated to this, but I would need to come back to this. If I go down here, is that too low? Um, imagine this is the block of Old Testament law. Which bit of that do we keep and not? The maximalist view would say we should keep everything in the Old Testament law except what the New Testament explicitly tells us we do not need to keep or should not keep. Okay? So, the New Testament says in Mark 7, Acts 10, the food laws no longer apply. So we keep all the Old Testament laws except things like the food law because we're told not to in the New Testament. So let me diagrammatise that this way. Um, this is the block of law that we keep. That's the tick to say, yes, you keep it. And over here, we put a cross. We don't keep that. And I'll put NT because the New Testament tells us not to. Okay? That's a, what we could say is a maximalist view of the Old Testament law. And so the food laws we don't keep. 
and uh, there'll be other laws. The sacrificial laws, we, we can more or less reckon that the New Testament tells us we no longer need to make animal sacrifices because of Jesus' sacrifice and so on. The minimalist view would say we don't keep anything in the Old Testament law. It's gone, except if the New Testament tells us to keep that law. Now, um, the diagram for that, here is the same block of law, and the diagram of that would be, say, the determining feature is the New Testament, that's a tick, by the way, the New Testament tells us to keep it, we do, the rest, we don't. Um, The difference between the two is in the middle. No one really doubts or disputes that if the New Testament says we keep it, we do. So, that's, uh, that's clearly the same. And if the New Testament says we don't, uh, we don't. Uh, with this view here, by the way, the minimalist view, uh, you could then argue that if, if really what we keep is totally dependent on the New Testament, the Old Testament law actually then has absolutely no relevance left to us, more or less. You could argue at that extreme because you only ever read the New Testament law. The difference is the middle ground where the New Testament is silent. What do we do with those laws? Well, this is where uh, we'll come, uh, I think, to my answer to that in one more minute. I want to give one other often quoted model uh, or or description. And that's point five, four point five, is the moral, civil, ceremonial law distinctions Ever since Augustine, maybe even Oregon, so 400 or even 200 more or less uh, AD, uh, scholars and theologians have come up with this distinction. It's uh, in the Anglican Church's 39 articles. It's in the Westminster Confession, Calvin, and a whole host of others before and after. The law is divided into three categories, uh, different from these ones, Civil laws are to do with laws that relate to Israel as a nation. Now, since the New Testament times, there is no nation of God's people, despite what America or England and others might say, they're not, and, uh, uh, and so on. So, uh, the laws to do with a nation would include things like warfare, uh, cities of refuge for fleeing to for safety, Um, penalties, death penalties, for example, for some sins. Uh, That's that's in a sense a civil law, um, uh, etc. We don't keep them because we're no longer a nation. The ceremonial laws we don't keep because Jesus does away with that through his death on the cross. So the ceremonies, the feasts, the sacrifices, the priest laws, etc., etc., gone. The moral laws we keep because God's moral standards are unchanging. Now, there's some, there's some sense in this model. My view is that it's too simplistic. Neither Old nor New Testament ever, ever divide the law in those categories. When the New Testament speaks about fulfilling the law or the law, it means the whole lot. It doesn't make a distinction in these categories. Um, it's also hard sometimes to work out where does this law fit Is the Sabbath law a ceremonial law or a moral law or even perhaps a civil law? It's a bit ambiguous. 
I personally think it has elements of morality to it as well as ceremony at least. And I think the ceremonial laws have elements of morality in them like uh, the laws of worship in Deuteronomy 12 and 16 for the feasts talk about caring for the poor and the landless, the aliens, the Levites and so on. I, I think there's, there's morality in there. And in fact, when Amos and Hosea and Isaiah 1 and Micah uh, respond about worship and say how bad it is in this 8th century BC, the reason why it's so bad is because of the immorality that's associated with it. So, it seems to me that, that, that these three categories are not easily distinguishable uh, to separate them in, in that way. There is an element of sense in my mind about the civil laws because we're no longer a nation and the ceremonies because of Jesus, but I'm not sure that we can quite pinpoint the laws into one category only. The danger with that distinction and these, I think, is that you can either keep too much or more likely throw out too much. Uh, My problem with, in particular, the bottom one, uh, and, and I have a problem with the top one as well, But with the bottom one is to say the Old Testament law at least is completely irrelevant. Read the New Testament law, that's what we do and that's what guides us. In which case you think, well, is that becoming Marcionite and throwing out the Old Testament more or less? I think the Old Testament law still speaks to us even if it's not always a command to us. And and therefore the model that I, I want to develop Uh, tries in a sense not to keep too much, not to throw out too much, even if the model, and and the model is more complicated than the ones we've uh, seen of simple dividing into three groups. The model's based on this, that is, laws express principles which we then reapply. So the law becomes a paradigm of a principle and applied in another situation. However, what this situation lacks is what changes, if any, through the New Testament. And so we end up with another step. The principle we need to read in the light of the cross or Jesus or New Testament, whatever you want to put there really, that package, so to speak. And that will lead then what I put as principle dash. I think when I did mathematics many last millennium at university, You put a dash because it's related but not necessarily exactly the same. So, something like that. And the principle may be the same. You know, if the principle here is love your neighbour as yourself, well, you'd say, well, it's unchanged, okay. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength, well, you'd add mind in, but it's basically unchanged. But there are some principles that get modified. So, the dash indicates it may or may not be exactly the same and then you reapply. Okay, that's the Old Testament view, up and down, and this is up and across and down. Okay. Now, I want to, um, I want to tease this out a bit more then to think, well, how, how does this work and what are some examples of principle here that, um, uh, that change and don't change? I gave you a couple in the sense that don't change. Love your neighbour and love God in the sense with all your heart and soul and strength, uh, etc. Um, Some examples to think about and this is where I want to come back to, um, sorry I've forgotten your name but your your question from before about the land because that's one of the factors involved in the principle, at the principle level. Um, Your neighbour's ox or donkey fallen and picking it up. The principle of 
caring for your neighbour's property. It's not explicit at that level in the New Testament, but the principle of loving your neighbour going up the ladder of abstraction is the same. Caring for your neighbour's property, in fact, if anything, the New Testament extends who your neighbour is to include enemies in a way. So we could, I think, fairly argue that if my neighbour's ox or donkey has fallen, I should pick it up and if their horse has fallen or car's broken down or kids got run out on the road or something, you know, laptop computers out there, you, you extend it, you reapply it in your context, both a context that changes because of modern times, uh, but um, the principle remains in effect the same, uh, I guess. Um, there's, uh, in Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, you shall not put a parapet around your roof. Now, I could go and inspect all your houses or apartments and see if you've got a parapet. Some of you won't have because you don't have a roof, I presume, if you're not on the top floor of a uh, condominium or apartment building or something. But I don't, didn't have a parapet on my roof in Australia. I mean, my roof was you know, like, like this sort of thing. Was I breaking a law? Well, in ancient Israel, of course, roofs were ha- flat. A parapet was because the roof would be used, it would have usually an outside stair, uh, you'd sleep on there sometimes, you'd do your washing there, you'd do all sorts of stuff there. You might build a little shelter to get out of the sun, uh, dry the washing there, etc. The parapet is like a little fence for safety. The principle there is really care for other people uh, as an expression of loving other people. That is, make sure your place is a safe place. Now, I don't need a parapet on my roof because my roof is never used for anything, really. And yours may not be. But there's a wider principle of making your place a safe place. That, that might apply to our electricity or gas or whatever it is. You know, um, there are lots of rules and regulations, at least in Australia, for safety in buildings and churches. And we used to have to conform to all sorts of rules and regulations, like having exit signs that light up, uh, etc. I don't know what it's like here. That doesn't light up. Ours, ours, <laughs> ours often didn't either. But, you know, that's the sort of thing. Now, what it's saying is we must take the responsibility and onus to make our place safe for other people, whoever they may be. That's the sort of principle that that works in that law. That's unchanged, it seems to me, through the New Testament uh, as well. What about the law of cities of refuge? In Deuteronomy 19, uh, there are certain cities in the land set aside uh, I think, oh, what are they? Which, what's the name of one? Jabesh Gilead might be one. I, I, I may be wrong, but anyway, let's say it is. Um, they run off to these places. Um, may not even be listed here. They're listed elsewhere, aren't they? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Let, let's say it's Jabesh Gilead. How do you apply it? Here we are in Singapore and somebody accidentally kills somebody else in a car crash. What are you going to do? Run to Changi Airport, jump on a plane, fly to, well, you probably don't fly to Jerusalem here, so you probably have to fly to Amman, go overland over the Allenbury Bridge. At, oh, actually, Jabesh Gilead's in modern-day Jordan, so that's easy. And you run up to near Jabesh Gilead and you hang on to some pillar and you think, I'm safe. Well, of course we're not going to do that. But do we just toss it out? What's, what's the principle behind the law? The principle is to, to guard against vengeance, to make sure there's proper justice. Now, where does that principle lead us through the New Testament? Vengeance belongs to God, not us. That, that, that sort of does apply as well in the Old Testament. It's Jesus, in quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, leaves off the day of vengeance in the quote. That's perhaps still to come. Um, but also then, there's the parameter of land. 
You see, those places were set up so that anyone had easy access to a place. Clearly, that law, in a sense as it is, no longer applies, at least by way of those places. There's nothing in the New Testament that indicates in any way that we're to set up places in, in Rome or Athens or Philippi or Ephesus or even to the utter islands of the world like Singapore and Australia even. Um, so, where does the principle lie? Well, there's still principles of justice, but the idea of land uh, has changed. We're not a nation of God's people anymore. Um, we ought to be making sure there is justice and not vengeance, that we don't execute vengeance, that we trust uh, acts will be dealt with justly, etc. There's some of the principles, without teasing it out in all its detail, that we should be working on. Uh, let's try and think of a slightly more complicated example uh, as we, um, before we move on. In Deuteronomy 7 and 20, there are laws about warfare, that is, the conquest of the land. We ought to, warfare is a very, uh, uh, these days, especially in the last decade, uh, controversial sort of thing and, and a reason why people sometimes espouse dumping the whole Old Testament. I was speaking at uh, a minister's conference about, uh, I don't know, five years ago or something like that in a, an Anglican diocese area, uh, not my own, in, in uh, Australia. And I'd been asked to speak on the Old Testament, so I thought, well, I'll give them a couple of Deuteronomy uh, talks. I'd hardly got five or ten minutes into the first talk, um, which was sort of introductory, didn't even mention the word warfare, before a senior Anglican minister uh, got up. Oh, I don't even know whether he got up. He just started shouting out, basically, we shouldn't be worried about this book. It shouldn't even be in our Bible because it talks about killing people. I thought, oh, thank you. That's a very kind welcome, yes. Um, but that's, that's the view of many in our world today. Now, what do we do? Do we just say this is wrong and tear it out? That, I think, is a minimalist view. I actually think there is much to learn from the warfare laws, but they will never command us now to pick up a sword or a gun or a tank or a fighter jet or something to kill others. We need to be aware that the context is the promised land. It's not about going off to fight Egypt or somebody else somewhere else. It's about the borders of the promised land or anyone attacking it or threatening it. Deuteronomy 20 makes very clear you deal with nations far off in a different way to nations near, that is, in the land. So, it's, it, also remember that the, the Old Testament has much in narrative of law, but the narrative is not always right in the sense of what happens isn't always right. Saul fights a battle in 1 Samuel 15 where he actually breaks the Old Testament warfare laws in a more humanitarian way, in a way, but, uh, and is condemned for it, and loses the kingship. But, um, so we need to be clear, in Deuteronomy 7 and 20, you've got laws about warfare, which we deal with differently from narrative. It's confined in the land, as I say, um, and they're to wipe out everybody. No treaties, no intermarriage, uh, destroy everything that lives and breathes, in effect. Now, what's going on there? What are the principles involved? That's, in a sense, the law here. It's, it's actually quite concrete, in a sense, because it's that particular place, that particular land. So, um, what are the sorts of principles? And here, there, there are actually several that, that come into play. Uh, one is that is, the people of God is a nation, and that changes. We're no longer a nation. But there's more to it. Uh, this principle of warfare involves God being the judge. In Genesis 15, 16... The sins of the Amorites are not yet complete 
when Israel goes into the land, presumably, under God's command, the sins are complete and therefore it is God's judgment on those idolatrous nations. They're not innocent people, they're idolatrous nations. God's judgment is one of the principles. God still is the judge. However, in the Old Testament, Israel was to be an agent of God's judgment in the land. Not not other places, but there. In the New Testament, that principle is modified. God is still the judge. Jesus is the agent of that on the day of judgment when he comes. And though in a sense, you know, God is still sovereign and we could say that in different acts of God around the world there is still judgment, the people of God are not the agents of God's judgment. I think the only way the church, which is the people of God, are agents of God's judgment, I think, is in the preaching of the gospel to hardened hearts that become harder. But other than that, I don't think we're the agents of judgment. So that's a principle that's sort of uh, continuous but discontinuous, if you see what I mean. The other part of it is to do with land. Land is promised land uh, in the warfare laws. That is the land promised to Abram and to Abram's descendants. It's a geographical location. As some people say, it's surrounded by, uh, the map's gone now, surrounded by the Med, the Dead, the Red and the Galilee, so it doesn't rhyme, seas. Um, It's a particular land. Where does the land principle go to in the New Testament? Nowhere in the New Testament is there sustained by Jesus or Paul or Peter or anyone else, nowhere in the New Testament is the idea of the promised land, that geographical space, uh, is that idea sustained that it's that land still into the future. Rather, we see that some of the Old Testament language is tweaked in Romans 4, that land becomes earth or world, uh, in the sense of world, uh, for example. You see, for the first time in the New Testament, the people of God are to go to the ends of the world. In some senses, in the Great Commission, that's the most remarkable word, go. Because in the Old Testament, it's not. The Old Testament uh, missiological paradigm is to actually draw the nations in, basically, by a righteous living in the land. In the New Testament, it's to go, and even though uh, the church is like Israel and and described like Israel, they are to live scattered amongst the exiles and the aliens in the world, in 1 Peter 2.11 onwards, for example. So, there's a sense now in which land is becoming, in a sense, the the world, that we're going to the ends of the earth and the boundaries and borders of the land are no longer significant. Related to land, uh, how it's dealt with in the New Testament, are things like uh, king, because land is part of a package in the Old Testament. The land, the nation, the king and the temple. Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. That's part of seeing that the land land concept of the Old Testament has been sort of blown apart, so to speak, or expanded to be the whole world in a way, or even not of this world. Uh, If anything you see of a promised land, it becomes a spiritual or heavenly place. 1 Peter 1, um, born again to a living hope uh, that is kept in heaven for you. That's our spiritual inheritance. The inheritance language is used of land in Deuteronomy a few times and it's used in the New Testament not of land on earth 
but the heavenly land that is guarded for us, of which Jesus is the king and that is coming down from heaven at the end of Revelation, for example. Um, The idea of temple, of course, which is a focal point of land, again, in the New Testament, there is no concept of a uh, rebuilt physical temple in Jerusalem that is the earthly Jerusalem, it seems to me. Temple idea, Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it again, referring what? To his resurrected body. And you and I are in that resurrected body through faith now. We are part of or in the temple built in as living stones in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, for example. So the idea of temple is fulfilled in the risen Lord Jesus and his people gathered in him or with him. Now, I've tried to help you see that those, I know I've moved away from warfare and talking about temple, but land, temple, king, package, it all sort of fits together. And the New Testament has expanded the view to really a heavenly, we might say a heavenly, I don't want to simply spiritualise it, but in essence a sort of heavenly kingdom of God of which Jesus is king, his risen body and people are of the temple. In fact, in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21-22, the idea of the temple, the temple is now as big as the world actually um, uh, in, in that vision uh, at the end in the cubic sort of dimensions, etc. All of that means then that that the Old Testament warfare laws are no longer going to apply to that land or any earthly land anymore. Rather, though, where where do we see... uh, Oh, and the the nation bit leads not to the nation of Singapore, Australia, the United States or the modern state of Israel. The nation leads to the church. Uh, I should have made that clearer earlier on probably. Um, and one of the great dangers of reading Old Testament nation stuff is simply to say, well, Australia should do this, or as I've heard so many dozens of times, and, or any nation. Uh, not so. Uh, it's the church. The language of Israel is used of the church. 1 Peter 2 again, royal priesthood, chosen people. Um, the church is the Israel of God, not the new Israel, but the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. Uh, to a mixed Jewish Gentile church, you get Israel language at the beginning of 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, 1, verse 1, I think, and James 1, 1, etc. Um, how then do we apply the warfare laws? See, there's still things for us to learn and work out applying. Oh, I, there was one other principle actually in the warfare laws. That is that pagans living in your midst in the earthly land are a temptation to idolatry and sin. That's partly why to obliterate them. So that holiness is expressed in geographical separation in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, holiness is not expressed in geographical separation, otherwise we'd have to become a holy huddle somewhere and not interact with the the rest of the world, uh, more or less. Because the Old Testament missiological paradigm is to draw the nations in to a holy people living in the land. That's the vision at the end of the prophets, Zechariah, Isaiah and so on. Streaming into Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 4 verse 5 to 8 will show you a similar sort of idea in the sense of other nations will see what a righteous nation you are and what a great God you've got. It's the attractional uh, model or what is it, centripetal movement, I think, 
But the New Testament adds, it doesn't take that away, but it adds the centrifugal going out to the edges uh, motion as well. So, what do we do with it all? Well, these laws of warfare were in part judgment and that is out of our hands in effect. We leave that to the Lord Jesus when he returns. We are to live in the world, scattered in the world, in the midst of pagans. Um, We're not fussed anymore about any earthly package of land in any country on earth. There is no holy place on earth in the New Testament, actually. We, we still, though, are under obligation to live holy lives. This alerts us to the dangers of living in a pagan world. It doesn't tell us withdraw from it, but it makes us wary of the world in which we live, how seductive it is. It also alerts us to the dangers of not entering or receiving the inheritance that God has for us. Not an earthly land now, but a spiritual inheritance. So therefore we must work hard or even fight, uh, in inverted commas, uh, for that spiritual inheritance. That does not mean, of course, a sword or a gun, uh, and it does not mean against another person but rather the sort of spiritual warfare of Ephesians 6 is part of that. I don't think the warfare of the Old Testament laws simply goes to Ephesians 6, but that's part of where its trajectory lies, that we must stand with the armour of God uh, for the sake of the, the fullness of God's promises in Christ to make sure that we receive them, that we stand firm in them, etc. Now, I've gone into that in some detail because that, that is a complicated model but it still works in this diagram form. What it hopefully shows you, because the oxen, the horse and all those sorts of things, they're simple models in a way and and straightforward and obvious. Often there's a whole range of principles that come into play here. And the key ones, I think, are to do with things like land, nation, king, temple, uh, those sorts of ideas. And what we need to do is know what continues but what doesn't continue and then think through what are the applications of this there may be a variety of applications Uh, and and in a sense my referring to Ephesians 6 and so on is actually only taking it down to a principle level here I still haven't quite anchored it down in the concrete but I'll let you do that in your small groups when you get to uh, Deuteronomy 7 or 20 or something like that Um, as I suspected that took me longer than I thought Um, Let me uh, just say a couple of things to finish off and then see if there are questions. Uh, Functions of the law. Uh, Traditionally, uh, scholars have argued there are a few functions of Old Testament law. One is to restrain sin. Um, And and at one level that that does happen, although the typical example people give is the sign that says do not walk on the grass will mean more people will oh, I'm going to walk on that grass because you see the sign. Uh, that might be why I've, I've taught a number of times in Beijing and uh, there's my favourite sign it would lay between where I stayed and the lecture room. The green grass is longing for your cherishing, which means don't walk on the grass. Um, I think that's called Chinglish, actually, is uh, what I'm told. 
But maybe that's why they put it in that language, to encourage you not to walk on the grass. But sometimes law actually attracts us to sin. But on the whole, scholars argue that God gives us the law to set boundaries and restrain sin. Uh, Secondly, and Luther was particularly big on this, the law convicts us of sin. That's the function, I, I can't speak for a Presbyterian church, sorry, but I know in Anglican liturgy and I think in some Methodist and Lutheran liturgy, we often have the two great commandments or the ten commandments read and one of the functions of that in the liturgy is to convict us of sin which then leads into the prayer of confession. Uh, and that, that's true. As you read the law that says do not murder or do not hate or be generous to the poor or something, there are times when you think, hang on a minute, I haven't done that. That's the function of the law, to draw us to repentance and conviction of sin. Uh, The other thing is to promote holiness and uh, this was Calvin's view. It's a slightly contentious view but over uh, um, Calvin did make it clear, I think, that uh, this only works for believers. That is, where our heart has been made receptive by Jesus' death and the gift of the Spirit, then the function of the law actually promotes holiness in us because it's received by God's Spirit and written in our hearts and so on. Not, Not that we suddenly become perfect but it does actually help promote holiness in our life. There's a number of functions of the law and it's worth keeping that in mind as you read them and teach them in your small groups, uh, I think, as well. As I've said, there are some dangers and I have touched a little bit on this, so I'm going to skip over this, but the dangers are to do with legalism uh, more than anything. Um, but there are dangers of things like identifying our land with Israel, uh, etc. But let me, let me stop there. I dealt with the laws of warfare earlier. It seemed a better p- place. Um, Let's take a couple of minutes if there are any questions and then we'll have a leg stretch for five minutes. Yeah. How do I regard the Israeli war against the Palestinians? Yeah, uh, basically in the same sort of way as the Iraqi war, the Afghan war, the Second World War, the First World War, the Korean war, the Vietnamese war, the wars in East Timor and Irian Jaya and the wars in any other place. I don't, I don't see, to be honest, I, I don't really see any added theological significance for the Christian for that war or battle or, or fight. That's why I see it in the same category as all those other laws. I I, I don't say it's unimportant or anything, but I don't think it has any theological significance uh, at all. I don't think the modern state of Israel has any theological significance to do with the fulfilment of prophecy or anything like that. I don't say it's a good or bad thing in saying that. I just think it's got no significance at all. I believe that God still loves the Jews. I don't think God is particularly fussed whether it's an Israeli government state or not. Uh, if I can put it like that. Um, Yeah, and it's a complicated matter. It's complicated because the Palestinians have been hard done by, by the Israelis, uh, brutalised for 60 years. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the Jewish people were dealt with atrociously in the Second World War and in centuries before that in every country of Europe virtually. So, um, you know, they were treated despicably though that doesn't give them justification to treat others despicably. Uh, so, it's, it's a terrible situation when you've got people claiming 
different bits of land, but that happens in other parts of the world and, and they're of equal significance, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's not murder. Murder is the killing of a person for no reason other than things to do with your own selfish, evil desires. So, uh, the except- it's not exceptions because they're not murder, but capital punishment or killing in holy war, in a particular commanded war within the land, um, that's not regarded as murder. And, uh, and there's a distinction made between murder and manslaughter. So, in, when we get it, do not kill in translations, I think is wrong. It ought to be do not murder. So, a capital punishment is not murder. Yeah, good question. And the answer is not always. Um, the dan- one of the dangers, the difficulties of this sort of approach is knowing the principle. So, for example, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Three times we're told that in Exodus twice and Deuteronomy once, I think. Um, Now, I wonder whether you've kept that law. (laughs) The last time you had lasagna or cheese cheese on your spaghetti bolognese or I I, I can't think of an Asian equivalent, but anyway... um, how do you know that the milk wasn't from the mother of the meat? Well, that's why Jews don't mix meat and milk products together because they're worried about that. So, they actually build a big fence around that, that point. Um, uh, I think that's lost the principle of the law. Now, what is the principle? Well, we don't, we don't really quite know. The best guess, I think... Um, and, and remember, we live in different cultures and times, so what was perhaps obvious then is less obvious to us. Probably the best, the best guess is to do with um, it is some form of pagan uh, practice, superstition perhaps, that, that's got some form of life-death associations in some ritual. There is something like this. It's not exactly the same in Ugaritic law. Ugarit was a country further north on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Syria. Um, so, I think it's not to engage in a pagan practice and presumably because it's there three times, there was a big temptation to do it. Um, you know, so, there's a few law- there are quite a few laws like that where, where knowing the principle is not always obvious. I don't think that should discourage us from this model but it should just make us, you know, humble in that we don't know everything. <laughs> and, and, and having said that, um, what happens if you eat lasagna, let's say, and the milk and the meat are related in the wrong way? Well, I actually don't think that matters. That is, even if we don't quite understand the principle, surely there is a principle behind it and whether it is what I've suggested or something slightly different, it's not going to be quantumly different, I don't think, unintentionally eating the lasagna and, you know, a week later somehow somebody tells you what you've done, I actually think we haven't broken the law perhaps because there must be some principle behind it that's more serious. <laughs>